glad you're here today. Thank you to our guest gospel reader, Shirley Johnson. Yay. God was good today. I, I kept hearing, reading all week that it was an 85% chance of rain Sunday morning. And then yesterday it just kind of changed and it was a beautiful, beautiful sunrise service and, and 9.15 and here we are, 11.15. Uh, it's been my custom the last few years to do what I call on Easter morning, Easter day, the gospel, uh, the, uh, the Bible from 85,000 feet. And it really sort of gives you an overview of what this is about. What is it that we're supposed to be learning and gleaning and filling ourselves with that we might learn how to live the way God wants us to live and give us hope for a bright future and a bright tomorrow despite the kind of things that we see happening around us today that seem crazy. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did all that in the first five days. And uh, every time he created something, he said it was good. And then on day six, he created man. And he said, it's very good. But then he said, it's not right that man should be alone, and so he created woman. And everything was wonderful. Everything was copacetic. Shalom, relational, wonderful, in relationship with God, in relationship with creation, in relationship with each other. And God had said, I only have one thing you can't do. I don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just stay away from that. If you eat from that, you're going to die. Trust me. And everything's good. And then on Genesis 3, evil enters the world in the form of a serpent. And he comes up alongside Eve and he said, uh, did God give you some restrictions? And, no, no, no. Uh, he didn't say we couldn't eat of anything. He just said we couldn't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we do, we'd die. He says, you're not going to die. Parenthetically, God's a liar. You know, it looks really good. I wonder what it tastes like. I bet it's really, really tasty. Give it a whirl. Give it a try. And she does. And then she gives it to Adam. And this ends the relational aspect of, with God and creation and man. This is the break between the creation and God. And this is what the Bible tells us and shows us how we have been trying to repair this all the way through Scripture. And there are they depart. Actually, God shows up and he says, hello, where are you? Oh, we're over here. What are you doing over there? We're hiding. Why are you hiding? Because we're naked. Who told you you were naked? Have you done something? That's when it happens. Jesus or God knows. So they're sent out of the garden. They have Cain and they have Abel. Cain offers a sacrifice to God and it's not accepted. Abel offers a sacrifice to God and it is accepted. So Cain kills Abel and it goes from bad to worse. And around chapter 6, God says, I'm going to get rid of the whole lot and start all over again. This is where we get introduced to Noah. And God says to Noah, I want you to build this ark. Gives him all the dimensions. When he's doing this, Noah is about 600 years old. So it says takes him about 100 or 120 years to build this thing. And then he brings the animals on board, right? 
Meanwhile, all the people think he's crazy. What a dope. What are you building this boat for? doesn't make any sense. So let me ask you, how many sheep did Noah bring aboard the ark? What, what would you say? Hmm? Two? Nope. The answer is 14. In Genesis chapter 7, it, allows, it's, it lays it out, and it says, of the clean animals, bring seven pairs, a male and his mate, and only one pair of unclean. So there's seven pairs of each clean animal and one of each unclean animal. The ark must have been bigger than I thought. After 40 days, it all settles out. They come out and they start all over again. And one of the people that uh, we find as the earth is repopulated is Abram, who will become Abraham. And he lives in Ur of the Chaldees. C-H in the Old Testament is pronounced K, like the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldees is where modern-day Iraq is. And God says, Abram, I want you to head west. I'll tell you when to stop. And he does. And he gets to Canaan. And he stops. And he and his wife, Sarah, have a son, Isaac. And Isaac is the apple of their eye. But God says to Abraham, I want you to go take Isaac and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham takes Isaac, and Isaac is carrying the wood for the sacrifice, and they bring him up. He brings him up on the mountain, and he's ready to kill him. And, and God says, nope, wait a minute, didn't want you to really do it. I just wanted to know if you would do it, and you would. Thank you for your faithfulness. There's a ram in the bush over there. Use that instead. So he does. So Isaac marries Rebekah. And they have a couple of sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the younger, Esau is the older, but Jacob steals his brother's blessing. He goes on to have 12 sons of his own. The second youngest of his sons is Joseph. Joseph is um, not well-liked by his brothers, although he is his father's favorite, the technicolor coat, the coat of many colors. And one day the boys are out there in the field watching the herd and the, the flock, and the father says, go check on the guys and bring come, come back and report to me. So he goes out there and he's saying, you know, I had a dream and, and uh, we were all sheaves of wheat, and you guys were all bowing down to me. What do you think of that? Well, what they thought of it was they threw him in a well because they wanted to kill him. And along come some Midian slave traders. Midian, by the way, was a tribe, but Midian was a son of Abraham back in the day. And they bring him up out of the well, they sell him to the Midian slave traders, and they go to Egypt. And he's bought by a man named Potiphar, a very high-level official in uh, the Egyptian world. And he takes a liking to Joseph, and he raises him up to run his whole household. Potiphar is not the only one that takes a liking to Joseph. His wife takes a liking to Joseph. She's always trying to get Joseph to sleep with, him, with her, and he doesn't want any part of it. And one day he goes into the house thinking there are other people there, but it's just Potiphar's wife. And she comes on to him, and he goes, I'm telling you, I'm not doing this. And he starts to leave, and she grabs his coat, and he leaves, and... He runs, and she's got his coat in her hand, and she goes.
see what he tried to do to me? I told you he was no good. And Potiphar believes his wife and throws Joseph in prison. And the jailer takes a liking to Joseph and elevates him to running the prison. Seems to be a pattern in his life. And there's a time when the cupbearer, Pharaoh's cupbearer and Pharaoh's baker get cross-threaded with Pharaoh, and they're in jail. And they each have a dream. They don't know what it means. And Joseph said, tell me your dream. They tell him their dream, and and he says to the baker, "Um, in three days you're going to lose your cupbearer. In three days you'll be restored. So they're both released in three days, and the baker loses his head, and the cupbearer is restored. A couple of years go by, Pharaoh has a dream, and he doesn't know what to make of it, and he's very disturbed by it. And the cupbearer goes, you know, I know a guy in the prison over there, and he interpreted dreams. Maybe he can help you, Pharaoh. We'll get him. And he brings him, and Joseph said, what's the dream? And Pharaoh says, well, there are seven fat cows, and there are seven skinny cows, and at some point the seven skinny cows eat the seven fat cows. I don't know what to make of it. And Joseph said, well, the seven fat cows represent seven years of plenty, and the seven skinny cows represent seven years of famine. And during those seven years of plenty, you'd better be storing up grain and food because when the famine comes, it's going to be really bad, and it's going to be worldwide, and you're going to be the only one with anything left. You're going to be feeding the world. And Pharaoh goes, wow, what wisdom. And he raises him up and gives him his signet ring, and makes him number two in the whole empire of Egypt. Well, sure enough, seven years of plenty, lots of food stored up, great, seven years of famine. People come from all over, including Canaan. And Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to say, you go, go down there and get grain because we're starving to death. And they show up and they find out that Joseph is the number two guy. And now they find themselves standing in front of Joseph. There's a lot of back and forth. And they think Joseph is going to have them killed, but he doesn't. He restores them and brings the father, Jacob, down into Egypt. And they, they settle in the land of Goshen. And they're very productive. They multiply a lot. And then Joseph dies. In the beginning of Exodus, it says, And there arose a king that did not know Joseph. Hard to believe there's a king that didn't know Joseph, but there you have it. And the king looks at all these Israelites in Goshen and says, you know, we've got to do something about these people because there's too many of them. And they're going to continue to grow and grow and grow, and they're going to take us over. So they enslave them. And for 450 years, the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. And then one of the pharaohs says, if, if, a, if an Israelite boy is born, kill it. But not every midwife is doing this. In fact, one mom has a baby, and she puts the baby boy in the basket and floats it down the river, and somebody on down, downstream uh, picks up the baby, and the mother goes and says, I'll raise that boy for you. And the one that picked it up was Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses is raised in the court of Pharaoh. And then as he's an adult, one day he goes out and he, he gets into a fight, and he kills an Egyptian, and he has to flee. And he winds up out in the wilderness as a herdsman. And then there's a burning bush. 
And he goes to the burning bush and he hears God say, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Moses says, you know, uh, I'm not much of a public speaker. Really not my thing. I think you got the wrong guy. And God says, no, I don't have the wrong guy. Aaron is a polished public speaker. He will be your mouthpiece. You're the guy. So they go to Pharaoh, you know, the back and the forth, let my people go, no dice, and there's about all these plagues. There's flies and there's frogs and there's to there's all kinds of stuff. The, ri the river is full of blood, and finally it's we're going to kill the firstborn son, firstborn child, and unless you have the blood of the lamb over your doorpost and the angel of death will pass over your house, the Passover. And finally, when that happens, Pharaoh says, fine, get your people and get out of here. So they do, probably a couple million of them. They pick up all the gold and silver and jewels and all the stuff they have, and off they go. Now they get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh has a change of heart, and he sends the army after them. And they say, now what are we going to do? God says, poke your stick into the ground. And he does, and the sea parts. They go over. The army follows them. The seas come back in, and they're taken. And now they're in the desert. And there's the back and forth of the Ten Commandments and the golden calf. But they're wandering around for about two years before they get to the promised land. And they send in 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes. And then they come back to report. They said, well, what about it? Fertile, lush, unbelievable, what a wonderful place. But we can't go in. It's inhabited by giants. We don't stand a chance. Now, Joshua and Caleb were two of the spies. And they said, wait a minute. What do you mean we don't stand a chance? God's on our side. He's the one that told us to go do this. Of course we can do it. So they grumble some, and some people go in, and they get creamed, and they come back out. And God says, for every day... You were in the promised land looking around. You're going to wander in the desert for a year. They were in the promised land for 40 days, and now they're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. And they do. At the end of that time, Moses is mentoring Joshua and Caleb. But Moses isn't going to see the promised land because at one point during their trek, they needed water, and God said to Moses, speak to the rock, and the, water, the rock will give you water. And Moses goes and hits the rock twice with his staff, and the water comes out. And God said, because you didn't do what I told you, you're not going to see the promised land. I've always had a problem with that, but I'm not God, so there you go. Anyway, they go in. takes about seven years, lots of back and forth, battles, fighting, but they take control of it, and they have a good run. They have a really good run. And then there's a period of about 300 to 350 years called the period of the judges. The, a judge was a leader. And what happened was people fell away from God. So if you start up here and you're in, related with God, everything's fine. And now you start worshiping foreign gods. You start doing things that God doesn't approve of. You start marrying the foreign women. And you get down here and it's really, really bad because they got their foot on your neck. And you go, save us! Help! And he sends a judge. A new judge is raised up, a leader, and you come back up to a good place for 20, 40, 60, even 80 years. And then it starts all over again. They go through this 12 different times. And the last judge was Samson. And then we start to have a period of prophets, and one of the prophets was Samuel. And the people went to Samuel and said, we want a king. 
And Samuel said, we don't have kings. We don't have kings. We have God. We're not like everybody else. We want to be like everybody else. We want a king. And Samuel goes to God, and God says, fine, give him a king. See what happens. So Samuel raises up Saul as the king. It's interesting because over here he also does the same thing to David. So you got Saul as like the real king, and you got David as the shadow king, and they're back and forth at each other's throats. And finally Saul dies in battle, and David becomes the king. It's a united kingdom. All 12 tribes are copacetic. And then Solomon, David's son. David rules for 40 years, and then Solomon rules for 40 years, and it's good. It's good. And Solomon dies. The kingdom split. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is 10 tribes, and that's Israel. The southern kingdom is two tribes, and that's Judah. It's the divided kingdom. And they're both going off in their own direction. They're, they're away from God. And then the prophets start to say, you know, boys, you really need to get back on track here. You're over there. You're over there. You're up there. You're doing everything you shouldn't be doing. You need to get back where God wants you to be. Get back on the path. And the guy that was talking to um, Israel was Isaiah for the most part. But they didn't listen. So in 722 B.C., Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria comes in. And he conquers Israel, those northern ten tribes. And he takes away the best and the brightest. And he, import, and he, he replaces the best and the brightest with the dregs of the other places that were conquered. And these half-breeds, so to speak, in the eyes of Israel and Jews, become the Samaritans. These are the Samaritans that you hear about in the New Testament. And then, a while later, the same thing happens in the south. And the, and the prophet that's talking to Judah is Jeremiah. He's saying exactly the same thing. Get back on track or bad things are going to happen. They don't pay any attention. And in 586 B.C., um, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon comes in and does the same thing to the southern tribes. And they're in captivity for 70 years. And after that, King Cyrus allows them to come back. People like Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel. I said, try to say that five times fast. And there was a four-year-old this morning that did. Zerubbabel, 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 Zerubbabel. Good for you. And then for a period of 400 years, there's silence. There's no word from God. God doesn't speak. And then an elderly couple have a boy, a son. His name is John. Reminds people when he grows up of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, because he's wearing camel skin clothes. He's eating honey and locusts. And God sends him out to the Judean wilderness, to the Jordan River, and he's preaching repentance and he's baptizing people. And soldiers are coming and tax collectors are coming and average people are coming and religious leaders are coming. And they're repenting and they're weeping. And, and, and then about the same time that John is born in Bethlehem, another young man is born. His name is Jesus. And he's raised in a little backwater town called Nazareth, and he's a craftsman. When he's about 30 years old, begins his ministry, and his ministry begins with a visit to John the Baptist out in the wilderness. And John is like, whoa, no, 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 no. 
I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not worthy to untie your sandal. I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, no, this is how it's supposed to work. You baptize me. Then I'm going to get started. And he does. Miracle, 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 truth, preaching, organizing, crowds, the whole thing. And he, in the process, he makes enemies of the rulers. Now, along the way, John is arrested because he tells Herod, you shouldn't have married your brother's wife. Herod gets mad at him and throws him in jail. John says his disciples to Jesus to say, are you really the guy? Because we didn't think this was going to happen to John. Jesus never says yes or no. He says, tell John what you see. The dead are raised, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dumb speak, and the blind see. That was the kicker because no one in the Old Testament was ever healed of blindness. Healing of the blind was something that was reserved for the Messiah. And we see that in the New Testament with Jesus. We'll go back and report to John. Well, one thing leads to another, and he's been at it for about three years. And now it's Holy Week, and he comes in, and Hosanna, and palms, and we're glad you're here, hallelujah. And he goes into the temple, and he clears out the money changers, and he teaches, and he goes back to Bethany, back and forth for the rest of the week. And Thursday night, he finds himself at the Last Supper. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He gets arrested. He has six trials. He goes to Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, three Jewish trials, and then he has Pilate, Herod, and Pilate, three Roman trials, and finally Pilate washes his hands and says, after he said he's innocent four different times, I find nothing wrong with this man, but you take him, I'm innocent of his blood, you take him and do what you want with him. I got nothing to do with it. So they crucify him, and on the third day, today, he rises from the dead. Hallelujah. He appears to the disciples for about 40 days. At one point, we're told he appeared to 500 people. And then he ascends. And the disciples go, oh, man, now what are we going to do? A little while later, they're in an upper room. And the Holy Spirit descends and fills this group, about 120 people. They are now spirit-filled. Peter opens the window, preaches. 3,000 people come to faith. It's a whole different ballgame now that the Holy Spirit's on the scene. And they start to preach this word in this gospel. But there are people that aren't happy about it, like Saul, otherwise known as Paul. And he was the biggest enemy that this Christian movement had. And he was on it. And he would go to, and he would find you. And he would bring you back to Jerusalem for punishment. He's on his way to Damascus to round up the Christians in Damascus and bring them back to Jerusalem. He's on the ground has that encounter with Jesus. Next thing you know, he's getting ready for this ministry, and his name is changed to Paul. And he begins an incredible, incredible ministry of church planting. Europe, Asia Minor. And wherever he goes, he always goes to the synagogue first. He goes to God's people first. And he doesn't mince words. Jesus is the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. And there's three responses. The first response is yes. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. We needed to hear this. The second response is, that's interesting. Never heard that before. When you're coming back. And the third response is, we got to kill this guy. That's kind of what you had with Jesus. After he raises Lazarus from the dead, 
the very end of chapter 11, they say, and now they, they plotted to take his life because they couldn't allow him to continue because too many people were following him, and now they think the same thing about Paul. So Jesus said in Acts, he said, this is going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Somehow it even found its way to Ocala. Who knew? Who knew? See, that break in a relationship that happened in Genesis 3 was repaired when Jesus rose from the dead. This is not all there is. There is life after this life. It's not you're born, you live, you die, you feed the worms. That's not how this is. We will either be with God for eternity or separated from God for eternity. And in order to be with God for eternity, it was necessary that Jesus die on the cross for me. I was born with a sin nature, so were all of us. And when I recognized that and realized that and realized also that there was nothing that I could do to change that situation through all my wonderful works, I accepted what Christ did for me on that cross. And I gave my life to him in faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him, all that have faith in him, should not perish but have eternal life. That's true and it's real. And that was the whole point of him coming to repair the breach, to make it possible for us to be reunited with God. Jesus says most won't. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the door. Narrow is the gate. Narrow is the way home. He would always say things like, this is for those who have ears to hear. And I'm praying that if you haven't heard this before, you have ears to hear because it's absolutely Jesus died so that we could be with him forever. So hallelujah, he is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Amen.